I want to get into some things today about the symbolism and the meaning of the Feast of Trumpets, now that it's long gone, and we're finally to it. But, you know, from Passover, when Christ offered himself for his future bride and the Days of Unleavened Bread and the meaning that goes with it, uh, then comes a period of time until Pentecost when he sent his bride a gift, but he has gone over a long period of time, as he said he would do, go on a long journey, and then he would come back for his bride. <clears throat> In the meantime, he said, in his father's house are many mansions being prepared for his bride. But it's a long, hot summer when you're engaged and apart from your husband-to-be or wife-to-be. Uh, lots of phone calls, lots of emails these days, uh, you know, pictures, whatever, go back and forth. Used to be letters, but that's kind of passe today. In any case, there isn't the contact you would like to have. And he said we would fast when he wasn't with us, but when he was with us, we would not fast. So it's a long, hard time of preparing the bride through that summer season until the Feast of Trumpets comes. Today, let's discuss Feast of Trumpets. He says, let's go to 1 Corinthians 4, first of all, and read what it says about when the trumpet will sound. 1 Thessalonians 4. <clears throat> well, I'm in Timothy. That will not work. Verse 16, For the Eternal himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain, he thought it would come during his lifetime when he wrote this, and that turned out not to be the case, but nevertheless God caused these things to be written in the, such a way that they are uh, of the moment to us whatever generation is alive, including this last one, then uh, it is a correct prediction. We which are alive and remain <clears throat> shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the eternal in the air, and so we shall we ever be with the eternal. Well, that's what a bride does, is long to be with her husband. And it says here that when that time comes and he returns for his bride, we'll rise to meet him in the air and always from that point forward be with him wherever he is. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And with a bride-to-be, uh, friends, relatives, sisters, encourage her that, you know, it, it is coming. It seems like a long way away, but you're... Marriage Day will be here, and comfort her that the time is coming, it's longer than you think, but it will happen indeed. So Paul reminds us here that this is an event that literally, truly is going to happen. Now, I've spent quite a little time, and it might not seem Feast of Tabernacles-y to us, talking about all the things the bride needs to do, and the covenant that was made, all the rules and restrictions and guidelines that Christ gives us to be his bride, 
But the period I've been talking about has been this time of preparation prior to his return when the bride is making herself ready. So it is germane to the situation. It's just that I'm a little behind. Uh, careful with that one. In uh, where I am in the process, uh, in going through what it takes to get a bride ready, sometimes you get bogged down in detail and you get behind. And then you have to play catch-up. So we'll go to trumpets today and begin that catch-up so that by the end of the feast, which is drawing near, we will be current with events and the symbolism that God has. But today, in trying to prepare ourselves, we have a problem, don't we? We saw the guidelines and rules, and it's pretty formidable. We find ourselves struggling to try to be what we ought to be. And I've spent quite a little time on that. I'm going to go into it just a little bit more this morning before getting to some more encouraging things by the end. But let's look at a few scriptures to review how things are, what it is that we are facing. I want to go to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. And here look down to verse 14. <clears throat> Paul says, But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Now there's a problem immediately. The natural human being, the average person on earth, anybody you want to name, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Problem. For they are foolishness to him. The natural human mind sees the things of God as foolish. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So a natural human being cannot discern, cannot understand, cannot know the things of God. That is an immediate barrier for all human beings. There's a difference in our minds and our emotions. Opposite from the mind of God and his emotions by nature. We all know Jeremiah 17.9. Need I go back there and read that? I think I will quickly. You could quote it to me, I imagine. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart, the human heart, speaking of human beings here, is deceitful above all. So we, by nature, the human heart and mind, tend to be deceitful above anything else. And somewhat bad, now read that, desperately wicked, that is the way we, by nature, are, desperately wicked. Desperation is a pretty forceful word, isn't it? Who can know it? It's hard to even plumb the depths and the understanding of a human mind and all the places it can go, the things it can do, and how slyly, so subtly, so carefully, it can hide from itself. 
Romans 8. I'm going through these quickly rather than making long comments on them. We're, I think, pretty aware of the way we are, but I want to drill this in just a little bit before we get somewhere a little more exciting. Romans 8, verse 7. Well, let's read verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So there's a contrast here, and a different fruit between carnal and spiritual. Because the carnal, or the natural, the mind of flesh, meaty mind, is enmity against God. So not only is it deceitful and wicked, and cannot know the things of God, it is also the enemy of God. Anything truly spiritual, the human mind tends to reject, rebel against, and be stubborn toward, because by nature we just don't like the things of God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Galatians 5. Here I want verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. They are automatically at odds. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Your mind is so against the things of God that you can't do the things that you wish you could. Are we getting inspired yet? Let's go to Romans 7. Uh, down about verse 14. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law of God is a wonderful spiritual thing. He calls it holy and just and good up in verse 12. But I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, up to this point, you might say, well, that's just the fleshly normal mind that isn't converted and does not have the Spirit of God. We get deeper here. Here is Paul, taught three and a half years of Christ in the desert, who had God's Holy Spirit dwelling in him, and he said that he, yet, still, was carnal, sold under sin. And even being converted and having the Holy Spirit of God, he says, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I wind up doing. Does this sound familiar at all? If then I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. I understand in my head the law is good and I know what I ought to be doing, but I'm having trouble getting there. As an apostle of Christ, now, now, then, it is no more I that do it, it isn't what I will or wish, but sin that dwells in me. 
For I know that in me, that is, in this fleshly human being that I am, dwells no good thing. Even where he was, as an apostle writing to the, to the Romans, he said, there's nothing good in me as a human being. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Don't we find sometimes it's a losing battle? We struggle and we struggle and yet thoughts and ideas and imaginations and pride and vanity and ego and self-centeredness, all these things that we wish we weren't, catty, petty, gossipy, say things, put our foot in our mouth, and then we're speechless for a short while while we pull it out so that we can say something else we shouldn't say. Pretty grim, isn't it? For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So, I'm not really meaning to do it, and I, I have a mind that has the Spirit of God, and I'm struggling here, but the sin is still dwelling in me, and I'm still having to fight it. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, the natural human being, warring against the law of my mind, warring against everything I know I ought to be thinking and doing, and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my members, my hands, my feet, my eyes, my tongue, my, my whole body, my, all my members are fighting against that which I'm trying to do. A wretched man that I am. There's not a whole lot of room for calling himself righteous here, is there? Because the sin was still in him. The problems were still in him. <clears throat> I thank God, well, he says, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Emmanuel the Christ, our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So he said, I do have hope that I can be saved in Christ, and that's the only hope I have because I'm fighting a losing battle against the sin that dwells in my members otherwise. And we can recognize that as a possibility, that we have him as our bridegroom, we have the Holy Spirit to help us, and yet even as he we still have our problems dealing with being a human being. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Here again he's talking about this human frame and being a member of the church and, the de and dealing with it and how difficult it is. Know you not that they which run in a race run all, Everybody's putting their feet in front of each other, trying to win the race. But one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain. So he says, run, run hard so that you might get there. So this sounds like a lot of effort. If you've run races, 
long races in particular, you know you get tired, you wheeze, your muscles get to where they hurt, you have to drive on through the pain, and that's kind of what we face in this human life. He uses this analogy very well. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things, and yet we find ourselves intemperate and fighting our nature in various aspects of life, whatever they might be. I don't know. We all have different weaknesses and uh, many of the same weaknesses. But we're not temperate. By nature, we're intemperate. The things we like, we want to just get into completely. The things we don't like, we shy away from. And the things of the flesh are what we like. The things of the spirit are what we don't like. So it creates a fight. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, first place in the race. But we, an incorruptible. So we have a bigger goal and purpose here. It says, considering that purpose, he says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, not flopping about, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, he's organized and working at it, but I keep under my body, or after my body, and bring it into subjection. Whether you're racing physically, or whether you're trying to run a spiritual race, you have to bring yourself into subjection. And that is not easy, given our nature. Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, when I've imparted to them the things they need to know, yelled at them, screamed at them, encouraged them, showed compassion on them, preached to them, I myself should be a castaway. What a shame it would be, he says, after all this effort and beating his body into subjection, trying to be temperate in all things, trying to do things spiritually, he still finds himself cast out, cast away from God. Second Timothy 4. I won't belabor this too much longer, although I could read scriptures like this. The rest of the afternoon, I just picked out a few. Second Timothy 4, verse 2. Here he's advising Timothy, who was a young evangelist, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, always on top of it, he says. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, and most of the church is not today. They've adopted all kinds of wild things. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So he said they're going to begin to lose the battle. They're going to begin to settle into their own lusts and covetousness and desires and vanities and begin to depart from the truth itself and from the battle that we've been reading about in these other scriptures. So he is giving Timothy a kick in the rear end in a way here, telling him, look, you get after it. You be ready. You do it in season and out of season and get on them and get after them. Be patient, but be sure 
But you work at it because a time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine. And indeed, that early New Testament church began to fall apart. Just as this inside church has pretty much fallen apart. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. The church went from the truth, essentially, to Protestant fables and fell apart. And even those who have remained faithful are still very much most asleep at the switch. Now, Paul is throwing a challenge at Timothy here. You're going to be preaching and teaching in a time when things are going very, very badly. And you're going to have to really stay on top of it in order to salvage anything. That's really between the lines what Paul is telling Timothy here. Verse 5, But watch you, be careful in all things, endure afflictions. There will be trouble, there will be affliction. Do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of your ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He said, Timothy, I'm not going to be around much longer. You can't lean on me. I'm going to be dead. Realize the times you're in. Herbert Armstrong realized he would not be around much longer. He would be dead. He told the church, I have finished preaching the gospel. He had done his job, he said. Now get the church ready. Or prepare the bride, to put it in other words, same thought. And the ministry as a whole ignored him and went on about trying to preach the gospel around the world as a witness and are having a very futile time doing it. He recognized the church was in serious trouble and it needed to be attended to. But the ministry by and large still ignores the church and how people are and what they're doing and is busy trying to produce booklets and magazines and broadcasts to do the work. And they do not grasp and understand what is going on. I believe Herbert Armstrong was absolutely right. The reason the church was blown apart was because the bride was not ready, the church was not prepared, and that needed to be the order of the day. The ministry had bigger aspirations in mind than working with God's people. Now, I'm not saying they all were that way. There are some good sermons being given here and there. There are people who are urging the church to do what they should do. But I think that they are few and far between, or the ones that do get it don't do it often enough. And we fight the same things here that Paul was telling Timothy about. Now, after what we've already read about Paul and the fight and the struggle he had, here he was, he realized he was going to be killed very shortly. Verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Now, there came a point in his life 
where he realized, I fought and I fought and I worked. I beat my body into subjection, but I've made it through the course. I don't think any of us are ready to quite say that yet, looking at how we tend to be. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the eternal righteous judge shall give me at that day, that we just read about, the piece of trumpets. And not to me only, but in all of them also that love him. His appearing. Oh, yeah, oh, let's see. Uh, underline thing. All of them that love his appearing are looking forward to his return for that reward. All right, let's go to Hebrews 2. I want to pick this up in verse 10. Hebrews 2, verse 10. Now, this is speaking of Christ who was made lower than the angels for our sake. For it became him, verse 10, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, he created them under his father's aegis, in fact, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. He was perfect. He came to this earth, and though he did not sin, he was tempted in all points like as we are. Had the same urges, same desires, same push, that our human nature gives us, because he was human. And yet he was filled with the Spirit of God, but he did suffer. Now, though he did not sin, there were things that he could yet learn. And he was here to learn that, so that as a high priest, he might be able to understand what we are going through on a first-hand level. Now, why? Because he and the Father, before he ever came here, realized there was a real struggle going on. And they had witnessed it from Adam and Eve down until the time Christ was born on this earth. And they saw how very, very few ever really followed God's ways. Most of them listed in Hebrews 11. Not very many by comparison to the amount of people who had been on the earth. But he came here to suffer. We're to walk as he walked. We're here also to suffer. We need to really grasp and understand that. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but he will deliver us out of them all, Psalm 34, 19. And on and on it goes. For both he that sanctified and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brothers. He came, lived this human life, saw what it's really like, experienced it, and is willing to call us brothers. He says, yeah, brother, he's sitting at his father's throne. I know what they're going through. It isn't easy. And they are my brothers. Saying, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the church will I sing praise to you essentially quoting what David said at the end of Psalm 51. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. 
For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, and boy aren't we, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of that death, that is, the devil. He died for us, in other words. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Even though we may have been in the church, some of us now, a majority or most of our lifetime even, we are still subject to the bondage of being a human being. And struggling to be a happy one, a secure one, whatever. The world is out there struggling to be happy, peaceful, joyful, to have a good life. And it's a real struggle, and it's getting harder and harder, isn't it? in this world today. And we as the people of God have the same struggle, only more is added to it, in not only trying to make a living and enjoy a good, happy family, but also to become perfectly mature as a Christian. And that's a tall order on top of what everyone else is struggling with. And deliver them who through fear of death were held in bondage for a lifetime. For truly he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. The angels have a different spirit than Abraham did. Abraham was human, subject to all these things we read about in these other scriptures. The angels have a different nature, and yet consider the power of the struggle. But even the created Holy angels, one-third of them, followed Satan and fell from the peace, the happiness, the joy of God and became confused, frustrated, mean, bitter enemies of God. You may have encountered them from time to time. I have through my experiences in the ministry and other ways come against outright demons who were speaking instead of the human being they were inhabiting. And they are mean and angry and spiteful, nasty, lying. They do not have happy lives, I will guarantee you that. And they hate us with a passion and want to see every one of us destroyed. Satan goes to God's throne to accuse us daily, not meekly, but passionately. He is livid with hate for you and me. Now such is the problem. The one-third of the angels fell from the grace of God and into the bitter nastiness of filth. And they are trying desperately to destroy every one of us because they do not want us to share the joy and the happiness of being with God and living as he lives. So on top of all these other things that we are fighting just as human beings, we have an arch enemy who is trying to play upon our human nature to cause us to fail. This is getting kind of grim, isn't it? 
Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like to his brethren. He was like us in all things. No difference. It behooved him to be made like to his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and then Satan attacked him in that physically weakened condition. And he overcame Satan by the power of God. He knows how to be a merciful and faithful high priest because he's fought everything we are facing and even more. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them, to strengthen them, to feed them that are tempted. So he's there for us to go to. He says, cast all your care on him because he cares for you. So we do have that, don't we? So we have a knowledge of the truth, which is to set us free from the bondage of human nature. We have the Holy Spirit given as a gift to help us, encourage us during the time when he is gone to his Father in heaven until he returns. And we also have him alive, <laughs> he and his Father to talk to. We have his example and his word here to review, to remind us of the things we need to be doing so that we can live forever in peace and happiness and joy. It's spoken of to the bride in Revelation 19. No, it's 21, I think I want. Yeah. Talk about the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down in verse 2. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he said he would be our God and we would, he would dwell with us and so on. Verse 4, he says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This is not of the world, the people of the millennium. This is not speaking of the great white throne judgment. It's speaking of the bride. Clearly in the context, it's the bride. She is the one he gives the promise to that all her tears will be wiped away. There should be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. That's what he is offering us. If we're willing to go through the pain, the suffering, the agony, the beating of the self into subjection, we will be given a life that is free from any kind of conflict, pain, tears, frustration, and difficulties. That's why we fight this battle and keep running. Yet it remains. No, much, no matter how much we struggle, how much help we have, we still meet with a great deal of failure. We meet with a great deal of disappointment and disgust with ourselves. We deal with having to repent and ask for forgiveness and mercy. And those are things that are not easy to come by. So no matter how much we struggle, it seems we fall short. Really? How can we expect to function perfectly, flawlessly, as the bride of Christ? 
That's what we're here to be, candidates to be the bride of Christ. To help rule the kingdom of God and mercy and love, patience, and not make mistakes, not fail. How can that ever be accomplished? Seems almost futile, doesn't it? Paul even said, if there's not a resurrection, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and that we are of all men most miserable. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. I want us to feel a little cornered here, is the reason I reviewed some of these scriptures. I wanted us to feel futile, perhaps a little discouraged this morning for a while, to come to absolute reality in dealing with ourselves as human beings and what it's like. And have that confirmed in Scripture. And if you didn't really believe it was this bad, then we read the Scriptures, and truly it is. It's hard. It's difficult. <clears throat> Let's see if we can find an answer. 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren... I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. So he says, I preach the gospel, speaking to the Corinthians here, and he'd just written 14 chapters about some of their difficulties and problems and what the answers to those difficulties were and are. So keep these things in memory, and let's be sure this isn't all in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We've just reviewed a little bit of that in Hebrews. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, just like the Old Testament prophecies had said he would do. He really, truly came back to life, walked again, talked again, after being graveyard dead. Do we really believe that? That he is alive and real and full of emotion and caring for us today? We better believe that. And that he was seen of Peter, then of the twelve, He's going through and reviewing, you know. Here's some history. Here are things that really did happen. And you can base your future and your belief on these things that truly happened. Now, we are here professing that we believe that. We believe he came to this earth, was born, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and was resurrected to give us life. We believe that. That's why we're here. That's why you're listening to this instead of off doing something else. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to this present. They were still alive as he wrote this, but some have died. 
After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. He came later, the other apostles came first. For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He had literally killed the followers of Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He had repented, been struck down on the road to Damascus, and now he was as fervent for Christ as he had been adamant against him. What a change in attitude. Can human beings change? Paul certainly did. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. He said, I came later, and I had to work harder based on where I came from. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He said, I, I didn't do this myself. I had to have help. So there was a living God who was helping Paul. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Whether it was James, Peter, John preaching it, or Paul preaching it, he said, you believed it. We came to a knowledge of the truth at some time in our lives, in some form or fashion. And we began to believe, and here we are. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, they had some people there that didn't really believe in the resurrection. I don't think we have any here. Uh, that was the doctrine they were fighting at the time. How can anybody be raised from the dead? You know, that's unbelievable, unimaginable. That can't be done. I run into people now who think Christ was never resurrected, maybe reincarnated, but never resurrected. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. If there is not a living God up there, this is all vanity. We'll worship an ego for nothing. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. You and I have been called here to be witnesses of God in the end time. We've gone over that. A light to the world. Candle set on a hill. You are my witnesses, he says in chapter 43 of Isaiah, other places. So there are false witnesses, and then there are to be true witnesses. To believe with all their heart that God is alive and Christ is with them, and he's right here in this room with us today. And I believe that. Does that mean he's removed all our burden? No. He suffered how long? until his dying breath. You know how long you and I are going to suffer? Until our dying breath, or our last breath when we are changed at the last trump. One of the two. I can guarantee you how long you're going to suffer and when it will be removed at the resurrection but not until, unless you die first. And since there are no volunteers for that today, <laughs> let's move on. <clears throat> if 
Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. All, all those that lived in the past and believed have died. So they're gone too. They'll never be resurrected if he didn't rise. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. already quoted that before I got there, but there it is. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. If a tree produces one fruit, it can produce more fruit. And that is what the tree of salvation is there to do. It's already produced one and more, really. They've not yet been plucked, but they've been designated in Hebrews 11 and other places as having made it. But God is very, he doesn't name anyone who has not made it. Even Esau, even uh, Judas, it does not say they have lost out on eternal life. God will not render that negative judgment. Now, they messed up in this life, but can you really tell me you think Judas was ever truly converted? Christ knew from the day he called him to be one of the disciples that he would be the one who would betray him. It says so. It doesn't say Judas lost eternal life. It said he hung himself and he lost his physical life. And he betrayed Christ. What an evil man he was. There's no hope for him. He betrayed Christ himself. So did you. And so have I. We betrayed him just as much as Judas did. And still do. Day in and day out. By denying the things that he said for us to do. Now, I'm not going to throw any spiritual eternal rocks at Judas, are you? Verse 21, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Through Adam, sin came death, through Christ who was perfect, comes life. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. First resurrection, when he returns, but the changed are resurrected as we read in First Thessalonians 4. Then comes the end, the end of this age, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and powers, all the rulers of this earth, Satan will be bound, and a thousand years of peace will ensue upon the earth. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Some will be weeping and wailing, and there will be gnashing of teeth, but it is going to be a minority. Romans 11:26 tells us that all Israel shall be saved. You look at all Israel today and you think, no way on, in heaven or on earth will most of Israel be saved. Yet God has a plan in the millennium and the great white throne judgment 
under different conditions, without Satan around, when he is going to set his hand to save them, and as a good father, he is going to save his children. Most will make it. He will be successful, because he is a successful God and father. Doesn't look like it at the moment, maybe, but he has a plan. We look at the world and say, no way, and look at ourselves and say, which way? How? What way? Because we ourselves, who are struggling to do right, have a struggle to do just that. Verse 27, for he, the Father, has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. So the Father put everything under Christ except the Father himself. And when all things shall be subdued to him, then shall the Son also himself be subject to him that put all things under him, that God the Father may be all in all. He will remain the ruling sovereign of the universe, Christ under him and we under Christ, helping rule the family. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the hope of the dead? If the dead rise, not at all. The context tells you the right meaning of this, though the Mormons distort it. Hopur is in the Greek. And hope of the dead is what is being mentioned here. We're baptized for the hope of the dead, that is, the resurrection, as he says. If the dead don't rise, then what good is it to be baptized for that hope of a resurrection? Why are they then baptized for the hope of the dead, the resurrection? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Our judgment is now, and every hour, our lives, our minds, our attitudes, our hearts are being weighed by the Father and the Son. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Now, he didn't die every night and get resurrected in the morning physically, but he had to crucify the flesh, the desires, the lusts of the flesh every day of his life. Those thoughts will come to our minds, wrong attitudes will come to our minds, and we have to kill those, crush them, crucify them every day of our life. And that is not easy. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead rise not? You know, in the name of Christ, I can go fight lions in the amphitheater, but what good does that do me? Live or die at the hand of the lions or the mouth of the lions if there's no resurrection. Why jeopardize myself? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all we have, let's party on, because that's all there is. But somewhere deep down in us, we know there is more than that, and therefore we're willing to deny ourselves things that we very much would like to have and enjoy. Some of you are denying yourselves marriage and children. That's not easy. It's a natural thing to desire and to want. But under the present conditions, not being able to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, 
And even within the church, finding someone who is a believer the same way you are is difficult. So it's not just the sins of the flesh we face. It's the difficulties of not being able to even fulfill, in some cases, the natural desires of the flesh that are legal under certain circumstances. And even those are denied us to one degree or another. We have it tough here at the end, don't we? We truly do. Is it worth it? Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good conduct. Be careful what we talk about, how we talk about it, because it is so easy to talk ourselves into thinking and doing things we should not be doing. It's so easy to deceive ourselves that, hey, I deserve this. Maybe it's okay if I do that. Why should I be denied? Don't be deceived. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. We have the knowledge of God, so we should wake up and don't be sinning. But some men will say, some wag is going to bring up this. How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? You fool. That which you sow is not quickened except it die. Some people are worried about the technicalities. I don't care how God raises me up. All I care is that it happens. I don't need to know the technicalities of how he does it. Some people are very concerned about electronics and exactly what does a solenoid do? Exactly how does this current get through here and over there and cause this to happen? Now, some people are really interested in that, and that's fine. I'm glad we have them. But I could care less. All I want to know is, if I flip this switch, will the light come on? Or if I turn this key, will the motor run? I don't really care too much about the technicalities. Does the thing work? So I don't care really too much about how God is going to resurrect us. He knows how. Good enough. But some fool is going to ask. He says, let's understand, though, that which you sow is not quickened except it die. Well, instead of going into that, let's see what he says. And that which you sow, you sow not that body that shall be, but bare grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as it has pleased him, and to every seed his own body. So he says, you can plant a grain of wheat, and that grain of wheat has to die in order to produce another stalk of wheat that will have more grain on it. It dies. It goes into the ground. It germinates. And all the nutrition and value that is in that kernel of grain is used up in producing a new life that will grow above ground 
and produce more fruit or more grain. So he uses that simple analogy to say that you have to die. It is appointed to all people once to die. Once dead, then out of that death comes a resurrection, another life. It's very similar. It's an analogy. Verse 38, But God gives it a body as it has pleased him, and to every seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. Now this is getting beginning to get down to the critical part of where I want to go today. All flesh is not the same flesh. Even in the fleshly realm, there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. They're different. They're not all the same. Some people like to eat beef. Some like to eat salmon. Some like to eat chicken. Some like to eat anything in sight. But the point is, there's a different type of flesh there, different taste, different texture. So he's, he's saying, look, just in the physical world we have around us, there are differences in the way things are. That's something we can easily recognize. That's an e easy analogy to follow. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. Celestial means in the universe. Heavenly bodies, stars, suns, moons. And there are bodies terrestrial, that is, of terra firma, the earth. So we have bodies up in the heavens now, and we have bodies here on the earth. So he says, just like there are differences in animals, there are also differences in being from that which is on the earth and that which is up there. So if you know the, chick the difference between chicken and beef, he says there's also a difference between what's here on the earth and what's up there in heaven. There is a difference. The glory of the celestial, the heavenly, is one thing, and the glory of that on earth is yet another thing. The glory of that which is on earth is far less than that which is up in heaven. Now, if you'll take a telescope and just look at the heavenly bodies there, it's awesome, is it not? The colors and the swirls and the, the light and the beauty of the universe, just from our perspective here, tells us that even though things are lovely and beautiful here on this earth, the way God created them at least, there are things up there that are truly awe-inspiring. And I think he puts some of those things there for us to view and to try to help us grasp that there is something far greater than we are on this earth. There's a different glory there. Now, David helped keep his focus and perspective out minding the sheep by laying at night, looking at the stars, contemplating their movements, and he knew, a lot of them by name, what their courses were. He looked out at the heavenly bodies and learned about God. We turn on the TV and watch the heavenly bodies, 
and indulge ourselves in things we shouldn't probably be looking at. We tend to focus on the body's celestial, our, our terrestrial, not the body's celestial. That's what God is trying to get across to us. There's something better here than what we see on this earth. He goes on to explain, there is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. You look at them, some stars are brighter. Look up in the sky, don't you see bright ones here and there, and you see some that are dim? Part of it's because of distance, part of it's because of size and how much they're burning. So, he uses this then to go on to explain to us about the resurrection of the dead. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. We die, we get buried, we rot. It is raised in incorruption. It is to be there forevermore, never to have pain, never to suffer, never to grow old again, never to die. We are corruptible. Even as we sit in this room today, we are corrupting. From the moment we're born, we're headed toward death. Some of us are a lot further along in the process than others. And it becomes obvious by the way we look and the way we feel. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now there's a contrast for you. There's where we're beginning to see the light a little bit. Here we are. Dishonorable, born in weakness, born with all kinds of weaknesses, born with a nature that is contrary to God, hates God, is enmity to God, is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's what we were born with. Is human nature good? What did we just read about it? It ain't no good. No how, no way. I use that kind of language and grammar so the people who even live in trailer houses can understand. <laughs> Sown in weakness, but raised in power. You know, that's what we lack as a beginning thing, isn't it? We lack the power to overcome human nature. It is so powerful, and we are so weak. And yet he said, when you're resurrected, the weakness will go away, and power will come. I'm beginning to like this already. Let's read on. It is sown a natural. What is a natural, carnal body? Against God. Cannot know the way of God. That's the way we were conceived and born. It is raised a spirit or spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. There is chicken and there is beef. There is a vast difference. 
And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. And what did he do as a humanly living soul? The last Adam, Christ, was made a quickening spirit. Quickening, life-giving, living spirit. There are the quick and the dead, those that still can move and those who cannot move. We have trouble moving, particularly in the right direction. But then we will be given power and we'll be, we will be quickened into life again. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual. You weren't born spirit or spiritual, were you? You were born crying and rebelling from the first breath. If you didn't, they slapped you and made you anyway. But that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. So all we had to look forward to at birth was being what we are. Sorry about that, just the way it is. But there's something coming which is better. The first man is of the earth, and he is earthy. And everything about the earth he likes, and everything about the earthly desires he has, and the human carnal desires of what he is all about by nature. The second man is the eternal from heaven. So we have something introduced besides Adam and Eve. We have God introduced in the flesh, who came from the Spirit, lived in the flesh, and has gone back to the Spirit. Why? He liked it a whole lot better. He didn't decide to stay here forever and be human. Now, for the moment, I don't want to be anything else, but I'd sure like to get out of it as soon as possible through resurrection, not through the alternative soul life. Verse 48, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. Live, die, rot. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. Forever, beautiful, wonderful, powerful. Verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the earthy. I look today and I don't see anything but that in front of me. And you don't see anything but that looking up here. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So just as sure as we can look at each other and see physical, we will be able to look at each other and see spirit. Instead of chicken, we're going to see beef. Now this I say, brethren, and thank God that he can, and I mean that not sarcastically, but thank God that he can. This I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Here I could interject a thought that I've put out before, and that is, if I were to have to live forever as I am today, I would pass thank you. It's too hard, it's too difficult, it's too discouraging and frustrating. 
70 years is pertinent enough. 80 or 90 certainly is enough. Well, let's push it to 100 for a few of you. It's all right, I'm encroaching upon it myself. (laughs) Certainly a lot closer to 100 than I am to nothing. Going the other way. Aren't we glad that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? To live forever as we are. That would not be pretty. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. We are corrupted and corruptible, and we cannot inherit incorruption. Won't happen. God will not give it to those who are corrupt. Satan has eternal life as far as we know in terms of living forever, not in terms of eternity in a good state, but eternity in a bad state. Now, he was created as a spirit being to start with, and the fact that vanity entered and caused him to sin is one of the no-nos in God's plan. He was created as he was and fell from that high state. The reason... God made us earthy and corruptible so that we could die if need be. He will not give us eternal life without a lot of trying and testing and checking and insight into our hearts and minds because he never wants anyone, ever, anybody, to rebel again. So, he created us with an earthy, corruptible mind, and he said, overcome it. Be different. Fight against it. (laughs) Show that even as carnal and as rebellious as you are to the way of God, show your willingness to follow that way. If you, as a low, foul, yucky human being, can overcome that and live according to my ways and my laws under those horrible conditions, then I will highly consider giving you eternal life because I know that you will never rebel ever again. You would never want to go back to what it is that you have been. So, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. This is mysterious. This is amazing. This is hard to understand. Here is a mystery. Anybody like mystery stories? You got one right here. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Remember Job 14, 14? He said, I will lay in the grave until my change come. He didn't say until I'm resurrected. It certainly includes that. But he is expecting not just a resurrection to life, but a change. We must anticipate a change. A change in nature. The natural man is carnal and enmity to God. We must have a change in nature. 
How can we, struggling human beings, be the perfect bride of God as we are? I'll tell you, it would never happen. It would not happen throughout eternity, no matter how hard we worked at it, just like it isn't happening now. None of us are perfectly mature. None of us control our tongues perfectly. James said, no man does. No matter how hard we might struggle for how long, we're not going to get it done. If there is not an utter, total change in our nature, I do not want to face or fight my human nature forevermore. Seventy, eighty, ninety years on this earth is plenty. I think God even recognized that. People started living out a thousand years, dropped it to five hundred, dropped it to two fifty, said, about 70, if you live longer than that, good luck. It's not easy. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, how fast does an eye twinkle? At the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, not like we were, not like we are. We'll be changed. For this corruptible, this human state, this human nature, must put on incorruption. Now, we are corruptible on how many levels? As human beings, we're corrupting in terms of our physical being, headed toward death. But we are also corruptible morally, spiritually, emotionally. We are corruptible. Look at the world. Most people are pretty well corrupted, aren't they? Lie, cheat, steal, do anything against anybody. We are corruptible. How easy is it to be corrupted or seduced or whatever by the various things of this world? Boom. Sometimes all it takes is a suggestion in our mind or a word from somebody else, and I'm in. This corruptible, in so many different ways, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So it's not, immortality is eternal life. Corruption, or incorruption, is being incorruptible as a being. So corruption has no pull on us. Germs, bacteria, disease, death, have no pull on us as an immortal. Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, breaking the Sabbath, doing evil to our neighbor, Pride, vanity, is impossible. We go from being corruptible and seducible to incorruptible, utterly untouched by anything evil. 
that change has to occur before there can be no tears, no sorrow, no hurt, no crying, no pain. Because we are subject to those things due to our nature and how we've been corrupted and how easily discouraged and frustrated we are. Wouldn't it be nice to be impervious to a bad thought, to a bad suggestion, to not ever even want to do anything wrong? I cannot imagine it. Beyond my comprehension, I have lived corrupting, a corruptible and corrupted for too many years. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand anything else. It's a mystery that instead of living in the dying, instead of living in sinning, I could live forever and never even want to sin. The fruit, the wages, <coughs> excuse me, Galatians 6. The works of the flesh. We know them, don't we? We've lived them. We've produced them. But the fruit of the Spirit, and remember now, we're not going to be physical anymore. We're not going to be terrestrial anymore. We're going to be celestial. We're going to be Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are those who are Spirit, Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, mercy, joy. There's no law against those. That's what we'll be. That is the nature of God. His Spirit, working in our semi-converted minds, can bring in small part some of those qualities. But we are living testimony right here today that being of corruptible flesh and corruptible mind and emotion, even the Spirit of God dwelling in us cannot produce incorruption and immortality. It can't do it. There's the reason, Paul said, even as an apostle, even as someone who has fought beasts at Ephesus or whatever, I still can't do what I want to do, and when I don't want to do it, I do it anyway. Woe is me, wretched man. Only in the resurrection of Christ does he have hope. And he believed that to the point he was willing to keep fighting until they killed him. And now his reward is sure. And he will be immortal and incorruptible. God is love, 1 John 4, verse 8. God is love. I am not love. I struggle to have it. I struggle to show it. I struggle to keep God's commandments, which define love. He is his commandments. He automatically does what's right. He has no pull whatsoever to do anything wrong. Unbelievable. 
to a human being. It's just beyond comprehension. That's the way he is. It's what he is. It's what we will be. Feast of Trumpets is such an incredibly important day because it represents our change from corruptible to incorruptible and from mortal to immortal. What a change that is. <clears throat> For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. Verse 54, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. That's in Isaiah 25, 8, Revelation 20, 14. O death, where is your sting? We are concerned as human beings here about the sting of death, the hurt and frustration of those things that lead to death, disease, old age, broken bones, broken spirit. That'll be overcome. Oh, grave, where is your victory? Ah, we lived so long, we fought a fight against cancer, heart disease, diabetes, bad attitudes, or whatever, and died. The victory was had over us by death. We have some out here in the graveyard right here on this property who are overcome by death. We have some sitting in this room that are too far from it. One heart attack, one bad blood sugar level, one bad day, car accident, just plumb too old and wore out, whatever. One breath and we could be gone. But then, grave, where's your victory? We'll pop out of the graves, quickened as spirit. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, because breaking the law brings a penalty, which is death. But thanks be to God. How thankful. What incredible thanksgiving. Our hearts, our minds, our emotions should feel that we're not beef, we're chicken. We're not immortal, we're mortal. We're not like the stars, we're like the starfish that die and rot. Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord, Emmanuel the Christ, God with us, Emmanuel. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the eternal, for as much as you know that your labor is not vain in the eternal.